Take your Bibles with me this evening, please, and turn to Jeremiah 42. Once again this evening, we are seeking to get through two chapters of Scripture. A question is our title, Who is Judging Who? Last time we were together, we explored the terrible circumstances surrounding the brief government and untimely death of Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, a man who was determined to align himself with the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 41, recall, after Ahikam's death at the hand of Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, we read of Johanan, the son of Kareah, a captain of forces, who rescued the captives of Ishmael as he was seeking to bring them out of the land of, of, of Israel. Jeremiah would have been included in that group. And after he rescued them from Ishmael, the Bible says he took them to Kimlem, excuse me, Kimham, which is by Bethlehem with the intention of going down to Egypt. Now, this was something that Gedaliah never wanted. He never desired that the people would leave the land because Jeremiah had said, don't, right? And so to that extent, when Gedaliah died, as we considered last time, uh, that, that question be an example, the idea of us needing to be an example because we never know who's watching. As we considered that last time, we saw that with his death and then with Ishmael um, taking that group of people and then, and then uh, excuse me, Johanan coming and, and rescuing them and them going to Kimham together, uh, that it seems as though there is a, a scattering, that there's no longer a direction, that the people are confused, that they don't have a stabilizing influence anymore, and so they are looking to go down to Egypt really out of fear. It is, however, a very big decision and one that needed guidance. And fortunately for the group, there happened to be a prophet of the Lord among them. Pretty good source of guidance. Through their interaction today, we're going to explore the dynamics of decision-making in light of God's will. Maybe bubble some things up to the surface that perhaps we've not considered for a little while. When we approach the Word of God, as with any claim of authority, we humans have a choice to make. Are we going to trust it as our authority and are we going to submit to it? Are we going to claim to trust it as our authority but explain it away? Or are we going to reject it as our authority and do what we want? And the question boils down to who we regard that truly has authority. And are we going to see just uh, see in this the right by the... Uh, are we going to... Observe those that have authority, acknowledge them to have authority, and acknowledge their right to have that authority over us, is where I'm going with that, or are we not? We're going to see a conflict this week that is very much so along these lines, and by God's grace, we'll learn some important lessons about the Christian walk through it. So we're going to get through two chapters, so let's get rolling. Uh, chapter 41 is where we'll begin in verses 1 through 3, and the Bible says this, Then all the captains of the forces, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least even to the greatest came near and said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee, our supplications be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant, for we are left 
but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us, that the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk and the thing that we may do. Now remember that we are still in the days following the conquering of the land of Babylon. Jeremiah is now with the forces of Johanan after being rescued from Ishmael. Presumably, in agreement with chapter 41, they are currently in Kimham, deciding whether or not they should take that journey down to Egypt. And things start out exceptionally well. The captains of the people, they come to Jeremiah. They say, we want to know what the Lord wants us to do. And the things that God tells us, the things that you tell us that God wants us to do, we desire to do. So here we are, finally. Jeremiah has been prophesying for decades. Every prophecy of his mouth has come to pass. Now he's with this remnant and they sound like they're finally ready to listen. They sound like they're finally ready to obey. They say, Jeremiah, you tell us what the Lord wants us to do. We don't have many left. Ask God to show us the way and we will do it. Jeremiah might actually receive a positive reception to his message. The interaction continues in verses four through six. The Bible says, Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words. And it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not even according to all things for the which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us. Whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send thee, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So far, so good. Really good at this point, right? Now, not only did they say we want to do what the Lord says, but now they are extra determined. They say whether it be good or whether it be evil, they say we will obey the voice of the Lord our God. And that is, that, that's, I mean, surely it has to be extremely encouraging to him. How refreshing this must have been to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah tells them what the Lord says. If the Lord says it, I'm going to tell you what it is. I won't hold anything back. And they say, okay, we're going to obey it. So verses 7 through 12. And it came to pass after 10 days that the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah. Then called he Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto whom ye sent me to present your supplication before him. If ye will still abide in this land, then will I build you and not pull you down. And I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I repent me of the evil that I have done unto you. Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And I will show mercies unto you, that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return 
to your own land. So we begin reading the Lord's message through Jeremiah to the people in these verses. And the message to them is that they should abide in the land. And if they do abide in the land, God says, I will build you as opposed to pulling them down. He promises to plant them as opposed to plucking them up. And he says in verse 10, for I repent of the evil that I have done unto you. We'll talk more about this in the application, but the concept of God repenting in the Old Testament is not necessarily a rare thing. It happens quite often. And, And it does a great deal to help us understand the nature of this concept of repentance, what it is, and what it is not. So God says that he repents of the evil that he does unto them. That doesn't mean that God made a mistake, right? It simply means that God is now changing his mind, that God is now changing uh, the, the direction, that God is now changing his intent toward them. And we'll talk more about that in our application. And he says that if they will stay in the land, then God will deliver the remnant from the hand of the king of Babylon. He will show them mercy. He will cause them to return. And so God gives them all of these positive blessings if they are willing to obey him. But God also gives the negatives, just like he has in in, uh, going all the way back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If they disobey him, God says, all of those things that they're afraid of are going to come upon them if they go down to Egypt. Remember, this is the decision right now. And God is telling them not to be afraid of Babylon. And he acknowledges to them, you are afraid of Babylon right now. And this is why they wanted to go down to Egypt. They wanted to go down to Egypt because they were afraid that Babylon would continue to um, come into the land, conquer, destroy um, They wanted to get away from that, so they thought, let's move out of the land and into Egypt. So God has given them this message. We continue reading in verses 13 through 18. But if ye say, we will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, saying, no, but we will go into the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there will we dwell. And now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye remnant of Judah. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If ye wholly set your faces to enter into Egypt and to go to sojourn there, then it shall come to pass that the sword, which ye feared, shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine, whereof ye were afraid, shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there ye shall die. So shall it be with the men that set their faces to go into Egypt to sojourn there. They shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. And none of them shall remain or escape from the evil that I will bring upon them. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as mine anger and my fury hath been poured forth upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so shall my fury be poured upon you. When ye shall enter into Egypt, and ye shall be an uh, execration, and an astonishment, and a curse and a reproach, and ye shall see this place no more. So God gives the consequences if they are going to go into the land of Egypt. If they don't, if they stay in the land, though they are afraid of Babylon, if they trust the Lord and recognize that Babylon will not do the things that they fear, sounding very much like what Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, right, about Babylon, it'll be well with them. But if they don't, if they choose to go into the land of Egypt... And once again, very similar to what God said about Zedekiah and to Zedekiah. Everything that they feared about staying in the land would happen to them if they leave the land. Everything that they feared that Babylon would do to them if they stayed in the land, God says it's not going to happen if you stay in the land. 
But if you choose to leave the land and go to Egypt, then the sword and famine and pestilence will chase you there. And all of those things that you fear now will come to pass. So again, this is a situation where they can either trust what they believe with their eye, what they see with their eyes and what they would believe, which is Babylon just conquered us. Babylon is going to be our problem. There's no food in the land that not, uh, and all those things. They can trust that and go down to Egypt where reason would say they'll be safe or they can trust the Lord, exercise faith, stay in the land and believe what he has said that, that if they stay there, it will be well with them. This is the word of the Lord to them. The point is that God is making it very clear that God wants the people to trust him, not to trust Egypt. And this has been a battle really ever since the Exodus, hasn't it? that the people have been tempted to trust Egypt, to return to Egypt. And God is asking them by faith to stay in the land and trusting that the Lord will care for them. What God is doing here is he is placing before them a choice to see whether or not this remnant that has gone through all of these terrible things and that has seen Jeremiah preach all of these things that have come to pass, are you now actually willing to trust me? And God says, if so, I am prepared to repent of the evil that I've done and to establish you in the land. I love this. We're in 586, 585 BC. Babylon has conquered the land and God is still saying, I'm ready to restore you. I'm ready to give you mercy. If only you will listen. So God says that all of the things that they fear would follow them if they go to Egypt, if they stay in the land, then they will be, it will be well with them. So we can tell that God is very serious about this. This isn't just a suggestion because they asked. God says, I have a plan. Stay in the land. I will prosper you. Leave the land. I will judge you for it and you'll never see the land again. So Jeremiah gives the reasons why, um, the reasons for this stern warning in verses 19 through 22. He says, The Lord hath said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, go ye not into Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. So now this is Jeremiah speaking to them, not the word of the Lord, but Jeremiah's words. For ye dissembled in your hearts when ye sent me unto the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us unto the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord our God shall say, so declare unto us, and we will do it. And now I have this day declared it to you, but ye have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, nor anything for which he hath sent me unto you. Now, therefore, know certainly that ye shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence in the place whither ye desire to go and sojourn. A very interesting way to end the chapter. Jeremiah says here that the reason why this admonition is so strong is because, and he says this in verse 20, that even by asking Jeremiah to pray and ask God for guidance, even by saying that they're going to obey it, but they want him to give the guidance first, they're actually showing a de degree of self-deception, of dissimulation, of an unwillingness to align with God. Say, what? What, 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 is, what, what do you mean, pastor? What does Jeremiah mean here? Jeremiah says, I will give you this message. He comes to, the Lord to, uh, he comes to them 10 days later with this message. And this message gives the blessing and the curse, the do and the don't. And Jeremiah, at the end of this message, says, I've done as you asked, but you have done wrong. What do you mean they've done wrong? 
What do you mean they've dissembled in their hearts? What does it mean they haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord? Well, God tells them by simply asking him whether or not they should go into Egypt, they were entertaining a thought which never should have even entered their mind. Follow this with me. How long has Jeremiah been telling them to stay in the land? How long has Jeremiah been telling the people to cooperate with Babylon? It's been a long time now. He told it in the days of Zedekiah. Gedaliah understood this, right? This is why Gedaliah said, I'm working with Babylon. He didn't question because he knew what the Lord had said. This is kind of like if we go back to Balaam. Remember how Balaam went to the Lord the first time when when the men of Moab came to him and said, we'd like you to curse Israel. And he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, uh, what would you have me to do? And the Lord says, don't go with them. Don't curse this people. They are blessed people. And so Balaam says, sorry, not going with you, not cursing this people. And so the Moabites, they go back and they get better princes and they come again. And they ask again. And Balaam says, "Ah, let me ask the Lord again, right? There's more honor. There's more money at stake. Let's just ask the Lord again. In asking the Lord again, Balaam has shown a dissimulation. He has shown a wavering in his faith. He has shown a desire for something that has overridden his desire to obey the Lord because he already had his answer. And so it's interesting here. Jeremiah tells them, I'll give you the answer from the Lord. As these people look at Jeremiah and say, we are ready to do whatever the Lord wants us to do. But Jeremiah knows that this is actually not true. Because if they were ready to do what the Lord asked them to do, they wouldn't have had to ask Jeremiah for a word from the Lord because Jeremiah has already given it time and time again. It was already perfectly clear what God wanted them to do. So by asking again, what they were looking for was a different answer. They were looking for something different. And this is going to become exceedingly apparent in chapter 43. So... Unto this day, the nation had failed to listen. It was clear by the very fact that they were asking for a new word from the Lord, that they were predisposed to do this thing that God did not want them to do, and they were looking for a spiritual license to do the thing that they knew God didn't want them to do. And God says, look, if you listen, you'll be blessed. If you don't listen, you're going to have a bad time. So the mystery is gone. All the unknowns are made known. A simple transaction took place, right? The people asked Jeremiah for the word of the Lord, swearing that whatever they said he would do, God tells them to stay in the land, to be cared for. They said, whether it's good or whether it's evil, we'll do it. Simple transaction. So they're going to do it, right? They're going to listen this time. Well, Jeremiah has actually already let the cat out of the bag on that one. They're not going to listen. Chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass that when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking unto all the people all the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent him to them even all these words, then spake Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Kareah and all the proud men. Notice it doesn't say all the captains of forces this time. It says all the proud men. Saying unto Jeremiah, Thou speakest falsely. The Lord our God hath not sent thee to say, go not into Egypt to sojourn there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, setteth thee on against us for to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they might put us to death and carry us away captives into Babylon. Ah, man. 
You start chapter 42 and you're so excited. Yes, they get it this time. The things that God says we're going to do, whether it be good, whether it be evil, we're going to do it wrong. They weren't actually looking for that. They were looking for Jeremiah to confirm them in their decision. It was just 10 days earlier that they told Jeremiah that everything that the Lord said they would do. 10 days after this now, Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord and they look at him after he has given this message and they say, you lie. You're lying to us, Jeremiah. You're speaking falsely. God has not sent you to deliver this message. You're not speaking for God. You're speaking for that guy, Baruch, the son of Neriah. This is, by the way, the same guy that was there when Jeremiah ratified the purchase of the land from his cousin. This is the same guy that read Jeremiah's scroll in the temple. So this is a guy that's, uh, that, that is very much so an ally of Jeremiah. They say, you want us to be delivered in the hands of Chaldeans, just like Baruch does. You are effectively, they're, they're saying you're a traitor. You're, you're, on, Babylon, you're on Babylon's side. You're, you are a sellout. So much for believing and obeying the Lord. They thought they were willing to obey the Lord, but that's only because they were so sure that they knew what the Lord wanted to tell them. They were so sure that what they wanted to do was right, that they were certain that they would hear confirmation. And when God said, don't go down to Egypt, they said, aha, that's wrong, I'm right. And so they ignore it, verses four through seven. So Joanon, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces and all the people obeyed not the voice of the Lord to dwell in the land of Judah. But Joanon, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah that were returned from all nations whither they had been driven to dwell in the land of, of Judah, even men and women and children and the king's daughters and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So they came into the land of Egypt, for they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. Thus came they even to Topanhes. So they ignore the word of the Lord. And this fighting force takes all of these people who they had rescued from Ishmael, including Jeremiah, including Baruch, including King Zedekiah's children, and they take them all down to Egypt, to the city of Topanes, generally understood to be in the northeast corner of Egypt on the edge of the Nile Delta, verses 8 through 13. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah in Topanes, saying, Take great stones in thine hand and hide them, in the clay, in the bricklin, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house in Topanets, in the sight of the men of Judah, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt and deliver such as are for death to death and such as are for captivity to captivity and such as are for the sword to the sword. And I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt and he shall burn them and carry them away captives. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd putteth on his garments and he shall go forth from thence in peace. He shall break also the images of Beth Shemesh that is in the land of Egypt and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians will he burn with fire. So once in Topanes, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah again. Jeremiah has been brought against his will, as it were, to Egypt with this remnant of Israel. 
the remnant that had come from all of the other lands after Babylon had, had overthrown that heard that Gedaliah was governing. Uh, they came because they heard that there was stability in the land. Now there's instability again, and they're all down in Egypt now in the city of Topanes. And he's commanded to take what the Bible calls great stones in his hand and to hide them in the clay in the Brooklyn at the end of the Pharaoh's house in this city. Now, I don't know exactly what, what's going on here. Perhaps it was that these uh, that, that the, the Pharaoh's house was being built and so they could still put them within the stairs. Perhaps it was that they were being repaired and so the, the clay was soft and so they could put them in here. We don't exactly know how um, these stones are being put into this entry, but it seems apparent that when God commanded him to take these great stones and put them in the entryway, we may not be talking about very large stones. Right? We may be talking about a different meaning of the word great, which is important stones. Uh, it's possible that Jeremiah would take large stones, but it would seem a little strange, right? You're an Egyptian, and you've got the Pharaoh's house here in Topanis. And then you have this refugee from Israel come down, and he takes these really big stones and puts them right by the, right, right by the, the, the steps of, of your Pharaoh's house. It, uh, that'd be kind of weird, right? But if Jeremiah could, could take something fairly small but important and put them there, that might make a little more sense. Uh, these stones must have been, uh, well, perhaps they were significant in some other way. I don't know, maybe they were really big stones. We don't really know. But it has led some to think that Jeremiah was carrying with him either the stones that were on the sides of the high priest's garments, you know, the stone on either shoulder that had the names of Israel, or perhaps even the Urim and the Thummim, which we don't exactly know what they were, but it's possible that, that they were stones also. So it has led some to believe that Jeremiah had with them these precious possessions of the priesthood and that he was to hide those in those steps. Now, this is one of several theories that relate to Jeremiah and the elements of Mosaic worship. Um, if you've ever heard of Jeremiah's Grotto, Jeremiah's Grotto is the name for uh, a, a complex in, uh, in uh, an underground complex, as it were. Uh, there, there are caves and such related to it um, in Jerusalem. Some men claiming that within this area, Jeremiah actually buried the Ark of the Covenant. It is also written in 2 Maccabees chapter Two, that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and the Altar of Incense and he hid them in Mount Nebo and that they were set to remain in Mount Nebo, also called Mount Pisgah, the place where, where Moses overlooked the promised land before dying, that, they hid, that he hid them there and that they would remain hidden there until the time that God has chosen to um, regather his people again. So surrounding Jeremiah have always been these um, theories as it relates to the important elements of the temple complex, the Ark of the Covenant in particular. And people will read in various portions of Jeremiah of things that they think are the portion or the place where Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant. Many people believe that that's why he was trying to leave Israel. Remember when he was trying to go out of Israel and then he got arrested uh, several chapters ago at the, the Bethlehem Gate? Many people believe that he was leaving Israel at that time to hide the Ark of the Covenant. 
And, and so we have all of these different theories. Uh, of course, Maccabees doesn't help because Maccabees says this. Um, there's uh, several people that have claimed to have found the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem uh, and, and such. Uh, all of this pertaining to Jeremiah in some way. Let me add a little bit of, of perspective to all of these various theories. It's possible that those great stones were indeed the stones, perhaps somewhere on the ephod or somewhere on the, the, the garments. All of that is, is very possible. There's some reason why they're called great stones, right? We don't know what, what that reason is. But let me just help you, uh, particularly as it relates to the Ark of the Covenant, let me trace through this just a little bit with you to give you some perspective. The last time we see the Ark of the Covenant in the Scriptures is in 2 Chronicles 35. Josiah there commands the Levites to put the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And it would be there for some 40 years before Nebuchadnezzar first enters the land. Now, we have absolutely no record of the Ark being taken to Babylon. And that seems strange, does it not? that there's no record in the scriptures. We see Jeremiah, we see the Chronicles, the kings talk about Nebuchadnezzar taking the cups, taking the treasures, taking the pillars, taking all of the precious metals, but we see no record in the scriptures of Nebuchadnezzar taking the ark. But we know the ark was there just 40 years before Nebuchadnezzar enters in the land in the days of Josiah. So that is interesting and it might lead us to believe that the ark was not taken anywhere at all. The Bible does not speak to these things. The Bible does not tell us what happened to, that, to the ark. And as it relates to my perspective on this, you all have heard it before. If God does not have it written down, it's probably because it's not that important. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. If God wants us to have the ark, we'll have the ark. As with every vague Bible controversy, if God wanted us to know it, he would have told us. But I will echo something that Jeremiah explicitly said about the ark of the covenant that I feel kind of lays this whole thing to rest. It's mentioned only once. The ark of the covenant is mentioned only once in Jeremiah's book. And it's not him hiding it found in Jeremiah 3, which was a long, long time ago now in our preaching. And in Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah is speaking, he's looking toward the time when God will restore Israel. And we see it as yet prophetic toward the end times and the second coming. And in Jeremiah 3, in relation to the final restoration of Israel and the final regathering, Jeremiah wrote this in verses 16 and 17. And it shall come to pass, when ye be multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Jeremiah is looking forward to a time when the nation will be regathered, when the nation will, will worship the Lord and the Lord's presence will be with them in Jerusalem. And he says, at that time, the Ark of the Covenant will not be mentioned and it will not even come to mind because the Lord will be there. 
well, that's enough for me. If the Ark of the Covenant will not be relevant to Israel in the future, it's, I mean, it would be a great historical find. It would be very interesting. But if God says, in the future regathering of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant will be irrelevant, and it's certainly not relevant to the church because it's not our covenant, then it, that's enough for me. Moving on. So what these stones are, I don't know. Maybe they're a part of the, the, the ephod. Maybe they're the Urim and the Thummim. They were great stones. They were put at the entryway to the house. But the point was not the stones, right? That, that's not actually the point. The point is, Jeremiah is going to take these stones. He's going to put them under these steps. And God says, the very place in the eyes of Judah where they saw Jeremiah put those great stones, that's where Nebuchadnezzar is going to sit on his throne. He's going to come. He's going to take over the land. He's going to burn it with fire. He's going to destroy the, the false gods and their temples. God is going to, to judge the land through Nebuchadnezzar, just as he judged the land of Judah through Nebuchadnezzar and many other lands through Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to sit on the, the throne over those stones. And so the point is, Judah, when you see Nebuchadnezzar sitting there, remember that, that God said this was going to happen. Remember that this is judgment. We also see that even after the destruction of their city and the temple of the Lord among the remnant of Judah, there is still no heart to submit to the Lord, and that, that is made clear here. And so the judgment must continue. And the judgment must continue because the hearts of the people of God are still hardened. And that is the end of chapter 43, let's apply this evening. Three points of application. Point number one, let's talk about repentance. The first thing I want to do, and it will need to be a bit brief here just for the sake of time, but I want to be clear. I want to clarify some things about the nature of the biblical concept of repentance. The word repent today is generally defined to mean something uh, like to feel sorrow, to feel pain, to feel regret over something that has been done or something that has been left undone. So it's, it's generally the idea of remorse. If I were to talk about somebody being repentant today, the idea of repentant would mean they feel sorry about what they did or they, they repenting, they came up and they asked uh, for forgiveness. Repentance is very strongly linked in our minds to wrongdoing, to error, and to sorrow. But none of these are actually inherent in the co biblical concept of repentance. Now, we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, that godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be repented of. But the godly sorrow is said to lead to the repentance, not to be the repentance itself. We know from Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, that wrongdoing or error is something that inspires repentance when the wrongdoing is noticed and acknowledged and that, that the acknowledgement of the error brings about repentance. But the error is not intrinsically... It doesn't mean that the repentance... That, that you can't have repentance without first having an error. It just means that when you make an error possible to repent of it. Repentance is fundamentally understood to be a change of mind 
or a change of action. A fundamental shift in one's thinking, a manner of thinking or a manner of acting. When we understand this to be true about the nature of repentance, then we understand how it is that God can and does repent. It's not that God repenting means that he's admitting of some error or that he's admitting of wrongdoing. It's not even that when God says that he repents, that he regrets his former action. See, these are all things that we impose. When we read the Lord God repented, we say, oh, is this God acknowledging he made a mistake? Is this God acknowledging he did something wrong? Is this God acknowledging that, that, that he, that, that, is this God regretting the decision that he made? Well, no, none of those things are true. None of those things are a part of repentance. What is it? It's God changing his mind. It's God changing his manner of action. It's God changing the direction that he's going. God is not admitting to wrongdoing, but only at throughout the course of time, God is changing his dealings or his actions. And there's several different reasons, several possible reasons why God might repent. One of the major reasons why God repents is because man has changed his heart. Man has changed man's heart. Such as in the days of Jonah and Nineveh, where Jonah goes to Nineveh and he says, the city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. And Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes. They repent. And there's clearly sorrow and shame and acknowledgement of wrongdoing there that led them to repentance. And then God repents. God repents of the evil that he thought to do to the city. Because the people changed their heart, they aligned with God, they humbled themselves before him, the judgment that God had declared was no longer necessary. And so God changed his declaration and he's no longer going to do it. So often, uh, maybe it's because man has changed his heart. Um, oftentimes, as we see at the beginning of, or in, in chapter 42, when God says that he repents of, uh, of these things, it's because the judgment has been satisfied. God said, you're going to be judged. Babylon came in, did what God said they were going to do, tore down the temple, burned it, burned the city with fire. God's wrath is appeased. Now he's ready to offer them another chance. He's finished with the judgment it's time for him to turn back to mercy. So there is this time where man changes his heart and God responds to it. There's this time where God fulfills his judgment and now he is, is back on the path of mercy. Uh, there are times where intercession brings about God's repentance. We see this back in Exodus 32 when Moses begs God to repent of the evil that he thought to do against the nation. God says, I'm going to destroy this nation. Moses says, please don't destroy the nation. God says, for your sake, Moses, I'm not going to destroy the nation. God repented of the evil that he thought to do to the nation on the basis of Moses' intercession. And sometimes it's on the basis of man's evil that God repents, such as in the days of Noah when God saw all of the evil that was happening and it repented him that he had made man. It repented him that he had put man on the earth. That doesn't mean God says, I made a mistake. It means it's time to destroy the men that I have created in judgment. And so God repents of his mercy and brings about a path of judgment. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
In all of these scenarios, we are not inherently seeing God regret or admit error or explicitly be sad, although sorrow in the case of man's sin, but only that the actions and the circumstances at hand caused God to pursue a fundamental change in the way that he is acting toward us. By the same line of understanding, we recognize this does not constitute a change in God's nature or a change in God's character, but only a change in his actions or his intentions in response to us. Now, as we consider these concepts of repentance, the same can be said as it relates to repentance as a New Testament concept. We understand repentance to be a change in thought or in action. That change, particularly as it relates to sin, will often be accompanied by sorrow, will often be rooted in some wrongdoing, some error, some sin. And so we often think of repentance in relationship to sin, and rightfully so. That we have sinned, we acknowledge that our sin is evil and our sin is wrong and our sin is an offense to the Lord, and we repent of that sin, we repent of that evil, we repent of that wrong, and in doing so, we realign with the Lord. Oftentimes, this, this comes with sorrow. And there's great sorrow in our heart that we have once again uh, offended the Lord. But we need to be careful that we're not linking repentance to sin and sorrow so closely that we're imposing a false standard upon the concept of repentance. And here's what I mean by this. There are any number of times in the Bible that speaks of calling sinners to repentance. There are any number of times where the Bible speaks of repentance and remission of sins. There are calls for people to repent of specific sins, such as fornication and uncleanness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. But, and I encourage you to look at this, there's never one time in the whole of the New Testament, there's never one gospel presentation in the New Testament that calls people to repent of their sins as a gospel presentation concept. In fact, there are only eight of 60 New Testament references to the concept of repentance where the object of that repentance is even mentioned. In other words, repent of something. There are only eight times of the 60. All of the other times where the word repent is used, it's used intransitively. In other words, it does not take an object. It's not repent of something, it's just repent. Repent and be baptized. Repent, um, uh, calling sinners to repentance, that sort of an idea. Eight of the 60 times that the word is used, it has an object, repent of something. Five of those eight times we find in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, speaking of repentance during the end times, of, of the, the unbelieving world repenting of their rebellion, repenting of their, their, their wrong before the Lord during judgment. The other three times, one in Acts chapter 8, verse 22, Peter calls for Simon the sorcerer to repent of his wickedness in attempting to buy the gifts of God. That's where Peter specifically says what Simon ought to repent of. And that's that root of bitterness. 2 Corinthians 12, 21, we mentioned it already. Paul expresses fear toward the church of Corinth 
that he would find men and women in the church who had not repented of their uncleanness and their wickedness before he had arrived. And so there he's speaking of church members not repenting of their fornication and their uncleanness. And the third is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul describes the foundation of the faith. And he describes it as repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And it is only that final example that I believe reflects in any way the manner in which repentance unto, uh, as it relates to salvation, as it relates to being born again, as it relates to a gospel presentation, the only way that those should be re- linked. Every other call to repent does not take an object. It does not say repent of anything. It simply speaks of repentance. And it is only in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul is describing a gospel context with repentance. And that gospel context is repent from dead works and put your faith in God. Dead works, of course, being any work that would seek to draw me into favor with God. So then, what is this thing about repentance? Repentance is about a fundamental shift in mindset and in operation. Sorrow may be a part of that fundamental shift, and often is. Wrongdoing or error is often a motivating factor for repentance. Makes sense. We do a fundamental injustice to a proper understanding of the word, however, if we impose wrongdoing and error as an essential part of repentance or if we impose sorrow as an essential part of repentance. If we impose this motivation or the emotions upon the word, what happens then is a person says, well, I didn't feel sorry enough, so did I really repent? Or I, I, I don't know that I was doing anything wrong, but I want to change to doing something different, but then it can't be repentance. If we, if we bring those concepts in and we link them too closely to repentance, then we are limiting the scope of repentance in an unnecessary way. And it can bring about also a misunderstanding of the nature of God. And when a person reads that God repents in the Old Testament, they can get a little confused. But if we aren't careful, we'll misunderstand God, we'll misunderstand the gospel. If we are careful to understand that repentance is about a fundamental shift in mindset and in action. And all of those things may accompany it, the emotions, the motivations, but it's about that fundamental shift. Then we will do well and we will be on safe ground. Point number two, be careful with safety nets. Be careful with safety nets. One of the things that becomes apparent in these chapters, just as it has in several other chapters in Jeremiah, is that God wants to be our safety net. God wants to be the one whom we rely upon in the day of trouble. And the nation of Israel had a, a habit of running to Assyria, of running to Egypt, of uh, giving their enemies a bunch of money to be their out, to be their deliverers. And all the while, while, while the kings are, are begging, are bribing these nations to come alongside them and to give them extra clout, God is practically begging them to trust him and promising that if they trust him, it will be well with them. And as we see this, and even as we consider this week, God telling them, if you trust me, it will be well. If you trust in Egypt, it will not go well. 
as we see this, I want us to think about our own lives. I want us to talk about safety nets. We live in a safety net culture. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, all social safety net ideas account for $2.2 trillion out of the $2.85 trillion that our government is mandated to spend every year. That's something like 75% of all government spending is on these three social safety net programs. Now, we live in a culture that exerts a tremendous amount of social pressure to have insurance for every facet of life, to cover every possible contingency or problem. And may I just make this clear as we continue, I'm not preaching against insurance, nor am I preaching against social safety nets this evening. But on the testimony of God's word, one of the things that we need to be careful about in a social safety net culture, in a culture that is wealthy and that is established and that is by this wealth, and, and I mean, I, I, it's hard to say it's wealth because we're going into tremendous debt for it, right? But simultaneously, in a culture such as ours, and then as we look at, at, at the broader Western world, you think of Canada, you think of Europe, you think of the tremendous social safety nets that they have in those countries as well. It's not just in a United States problem. But as we think of all of these things, it is easy to begin to trust the safety nets rather than to trust the Lord. And we need to watch out for this. When things go wrong, what is your primary fallback? Is, is it the safety net or is it the Lord? If it's the safety net, then I've gone beyond just that realm of prudence and of wisdom that things such as insurance can afford. And I've actually gone to a place of faithlessness that I am trusting in a carnal material solution at the expense of trusting in my Lord. Again, I'm not preaching against these things. It's the same way that, that we preach money, right? Money is not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money, it's not a problem to have money. It's a problem when money has you, right? It's not a problem to have a plan. It's not a problem to have things put in place. It's not a problem to have a bank account set aside for a rainy day. It's not a problem to have safety nets put under you. It's a problem if your hope and your trust rests in those safety nets. And I can't, I can't say that for anyone here. I can't, I can't look into your heart I, and, and look at your safety nets and say, you're not trusting the Lord because you have this safety net because that's not necessarily true. Nor can I even necessarily say, oh, you don't have this safety net. That means that you're trusting the Lord fully. That may not be true either. This is something in your heart to think through. This is something for you to commune with your own heart and determine whether or not you are trusting the Lord or you're trusting in man. Whether or not you are using this world or you're abusing this world. Whether or not your heart has drifted into a place where you are trusting in the wealth and the prosperity of the society around you uh, or, or whether or not your heart is in the right place and you're doing these things out of prudence and care. 
When my compulsion to have a safety net is no longer driven by prudence or wisdom, no longer driven by uh, the Lord laying it upon my heart as, as the Spirit of God communes with me, but is compelled by fear or a conviction that if I don't have the safety net, then I don't have safety, then there's something wrong. See, because the Lord is our ultimate safety net. The Lord is our protector. The Lord often uses the things of this world. God uses a job to provide for my family, right? But it's God that's providing for my family. God may use a safety net to protect my family in that day of trouble, but God is the one protecting my family. Is that it? And, and, and you really need to be honest with yourself in this, prayerful with yourself on this. And the reason why honesty and prayerfulness is necessary is because anybody can be trusting in a safety net and say, yep, it's the Lord. But is it? The Lord is our provider. If he uses programs and institutions, that's wonderful. The Lord is our health. When he uses the medical field, that's wonderful. Israel was at the point where they were being asked by God to stay, however, and the wisdom said, go. The, the worldly wisdom said, go. And this is where we find what Israel was actually trusting in. And this is what you might find as well. It will be in the day of trial that you're actually going to know who you're trusting in. Did you run to the Lord first or did you run to all of the other solutions first? That's going to tell you a lot about the way you're thinking the people chose to go rather than to stay. They chose not to trust in the Lord, but to trust in the safety net of leaving the land and going to Egypt. Thus, they committed a form of idolatry. They elevated the worldly solution to become the source of their peace and safety at the expense of the God who had already said, I want to be exactly that for you. Again, I'm trying to tread lightly here because we understand that words are important and it's easy to misconstrue. And I'm not trying to tell anyone to drop whatever safety nets you have in place. But I'm asking you to evaluate your motivations and the principles by which you operate. Are you relying upon God or aren't you? Where does your trust actually lie? And if changes need to be made, it may not necessitate a change in what you are doing but maybe only how you're thinking about what you're doing. But you need to repent. You need to change if there a change needs to be made. Examine your heart. Know whether or not you are trusting the Lord. Third point and final point this evening. Are the scriptures judging us or are we judging the scriptures? We come again to this idea and it's made so clear in these two chapters. The children of Judah come to Jeremiah and pray to the Lord asking him for a message and saying, no matter what that message is, what he says is what we will do. And then when the message comes, they reject it as invalid and they do what they think is best. This is not uncommon. We go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I want your will. But we already have in our mind what we think the Lord's will is. And what we're actually doing is we're not going to the Lord with, as an empty slate seeking what He wants of us. We're actually going to the Lord looking for confirmation of what we want. We do this all the time. And so we go looking for the signs 
that what we are doing is okay for the Lord. I can't tell you how often I deal with this in the jail. As a matter of fact, just about a month ago, I was dealing with a man. And he had all of his descriptions couched in God language. I'm looking for the Lord's blessing and and the Lord's going to provide for my needs. And so this is what he did. He says, I I was working and I was borrowing and I didn't have enough money to get where I needed to go. So I borrowed all this money from friends and I went to the casino. And he started gambling all of that money away. And he he, uh, he, he lost it all. And then he went and he borrowed some more money. And he started and he said, and he said, what I did this time is I went different. I did the small stakes, like the quarter ones. And he said, and I, I won, I, I won a, a, a huge jackpot on the small stakes. And so that was clearly the Lord telling me that I need to do more of the small stakes. And so he spent a, a, a good portion of time describing how God was speaking to him through this casino. And how through the gambling, God was showing him that he needed to do this and he needed to do that. And, and every time he lost, he was like, he said, I, I realized that, that the Lord was just saying, I just don't have enough faith yet. And so he'd go and he'd borrow more money and he'd find more money and he'd, he'd get more money and he'd keep gambling. Now, we look in scriptures and the scriptures are replete with warnings against unjust gain, against money made in haste. Fool and his money are soon parted. It is these foundational concepts that undergird the warnings that we would give typically in the church about gambling, the fact that that gambling is not a valid means of biblical provision according to the Word of God, and that's made very clear. And here's a man who at each moment along this path was looking for God and interpreting God into his will. Interpreting God into his ideas. Interpreting God into his concept of what he thought would would be best. And none of it at any moment was God. And after he told all of this to me, I, I spent a good amount of time listening to him. I looked at him and I said, you're wrong about all of this. None of this is God. None of this can be God. This is not how God works. That's not how God speaks. That's not how God operates. The Word of God is very clear about these things. And I walked him through the Word of God on these things. That was him imposing God upon his own will, giving it the veneer of God in order to justify his actions. Now, this is an extreme case, but but we, we all do this at times, don't we? We say that God is Lord. We say he's the one that's driving the boat. But when we're confronted with some error, some flaw, some failure, we reject the message. We insist that that pastor or that parent or that friend just doesn't understand, just isn't interpreting the Bible correctly. And I'm not saying there aren't erroneous interpretations, misplaced opinions all over the place. There are. But when we are confronted with truth and that truth contradicts our thinking or our actions, or when we go to the Lord and we are praying a prayer, say, and we're looking for an answer to a prayer, but we're not looking for God to actually answer our prayer. We're looking for God to give us what we want. We're praying, Lord, I need a new vehicle. Please give me a new vehicle. But what we're actually thinking in our mind is, I want a new vehicle, right? And we're not thinking of all of the, any number of ways that the Lord might otherwise provide for us. What if God 
wants to, to not give us the vehicle that we need to get to work, but opens up an opportunity for us to carpool with someone every day. And what I really need to do is to get to work. And I'm praying, Lord, I want to get to work. And what I'm thinking by, Lord, I want to get to work is, give me a car. And what God is saying is actually, here's a carpool opportunity. Here's another way. Here's an opportunity to minister while also going to work. Or do we impose and say, well, God obviously didn't answer my prayer because he didn't give me a car. Do, are we imposing our will upon God or are we actually seeking out his will? Do we have the humility to establish ourselves in good conscience to find out whether what the scripture say is what we're doing and to be willing to align ourselves with them if we are in fact, in fact incorrect in our thought and action? Or are we only a people of lip service to God? We walk around saying what God says goes, but in practice, we're actually doing only what we want to do. And we're maybe putting God on top of it. We're maybe explaining the things that we want to do in terms of God, but it's not actually God. May we ever humbly place ourselves to the best of our ability under the scriptures. May we always choose to go where they go and to be as they call us to be. I would wonder if to this point in the book of Jeremiah, this represents Jeremiah's most disappointing experience. Not the worst part of his life. I mean, probably when he was in a pit and about ready to die was the worst part of his life. But of all the times where there was an opportunity where it seemed as though people were going to get it. I wonder if this was the closest for Jeremiah. The judgment of God had fallen. It seems as though perhaps they were finally ready to listen. They said they were ready to listen. Jeremiah proclaims the word of the Lord and then they immediately call him a liar and a false prophet. And for the thousandth time in his ministry, he gets to experience that indignity of being called a liar. May God help us to be among those who put their trust in the Lord and who place our hope in Him. May we be humble. May we have faith, echoing the words of the wise King Solomon, words with which we'll close in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy path. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.